Acts chapter 5 verses 12 to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we find the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we find no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose of activity is of human origin, they will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. 
Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. generation there are one or two people who change the rules. They are the game changers with such vision that everything that comes after them is completely different. William Wilberforce, Emmeline Pankhurst, Martin Luther King. It's easy to see how important these people are but what we so easily forget is the pain and opposition they had to endure as they went about changing the world. And that's the thing with challenging and changing the status quo. People don't like it. Lots of people don't like it. And the same is true for the followers of Jesus. It always has been and always will be. Jesus so changed the world and its norms and patterns that ever since the followers of Christ have been called to challenge the status quo. And that often means painful opposition. Maybe we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I wonder when, if you can think back to when you first encountered the gospel message. Very first time, somebody said to you that some guy died on a cross for you. Okay, I wonder what you felt about that. I wonder if you, you realized then that it was 22,000 years ago, how relevant that had to your life. You know, somebody had died 20 centuries ago, and you're thinking, what has that got to do with my life? And not only that, they then tell you that this guy from 20 centuries ago is alive again. Right? Were you confused? Were you bamboozled? Did you think that was a bit random? Did you think, who is this crazy person? What planet are they coming from? We forget how unusual it might seem to people. Um, I remember a, a girl, Carol, who was on the Alpha course, and she came uh, every Tuesday evening, and she would tell us, that because she was coming on the course, she had to leave work punctually every Tuesday, which meant on time. Now, there was nothing wrong with that, but nobody in our office finished work at that time. And it became obvious that she was heading off to something. And she would get asked every week, where are you going? And so the first week, she said, oh, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a class. And uh, then week two, she's off again. And he said, well, what kind of class? And she says, well, well you know, it's, um, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's my therapy group. And, uh, and so, oh, okay. Week three, it's like, what kind of therapy group? And she's like, well, it's, it's not really therapy. It's more, like a, it's more like a discussion group. I'm like, okay, week four, she has to come clean. What kind of discussion group? And uh, she eventually says to them, well, um, uh, uh, it's Christian. And uh, she's in a lift at this moment where she tells someone. And as she tells someone it's Christian, the person literally flew across to the other side of the lift in shock, in horror, in absolute surprise. And as we come to Acts chapter 5 this morning, we will see different responses to God's truth uh, and the gospel message. Uh, Jesus himself tells uh, the parable of the sower. 
And, uh, and in that parable, he talks about the seed or God's word following, falling on shallow land, shallow soil. And uh, the plant springs up very quickly, but because of the sun, it is scorched, it withers because of its shallow roots. And he says that the sun is like the trouble that comes on our lives because we live for Jesus. It's the persecution that comes upon us um, as we live out the Christian life. And the negative reactions that we might experience and the impact that has in withering our faith and so we quickly fall away or some quickly fall away. Jesus himself said this. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John chapter 15, verse 20. And as the church grows from Pentecost onwards, uh, these words are beginning to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 5, and they continue uh, today. And so as we look at this passage, we'll see there are four reactions, four responses, if you like, to the truth of the gospel. And uh, we see some of those responses uh, today, perhaps in increasing measure, some of them as well. And the first of them is the response to the council, the Sanhedrin, uh, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And their reaction is to attack the truth. Okay? It's led by the high priest and his associates. And they've got a number of reasons for uh, attacking them and uh, uh, accusing them. Uh, the first goes back to Acts chapter 4, where they've already commanded them to stop preaching uh, and teaching about Jesus. The second reason they have is because it, it undermines their beliefs. It is undermining their religion. Uh, verse 17, particularly the Sadducees, who did not believe there was a resurrection. And so these apostles are going around giving proofs and testimony that this Jesus is alive again, that they ate with him, that they've spoken with him. And uh, likewise, it challenges people's uh, thinking today. It challenges people's ideologies and worldviews today because it undermines uh, what they think. And the third reaction we see here is the religious elite are actually filled with jealousy because they see something of success, if you like, in these early believers. Um, they begin to realize that you know, they are very united in verse 12, that they are held in high regard amongst the people, verse 13, that more and more men and women are joining them every day, uh, verse 14, and they're seeing remarkable healings in verse 15 and 16. And so the apostles themselves find themselves arrested. Um, they don't resist. They don't organize a protest um, or a public uh, march. Okay? They quietly go along with the temple guards and they spend a few hours down the local nick and are remarkably released in the middle of the night because the angels appear and somehow they are released. And they tell them to return to the place where they were, back to the temple courts, and continue speaking, continue telling and testifying about Jesus and the full message of this new life um, in verse 20. And so, in a remarkable way, because even the, the guards haven't realized they've escaped, they're still on guard duty, they haven't noticed that they've gone, the leaders eventually discover it. And so the Sadducees, who don't believe in angels, who don't believe in the supernatural, who don't believe in miracles, suddenly find themselves, having tried to stop miracles, ending up with an even bigger miracle um, because of what they've done. And uh, there are many in our world today who try to attack the truth of God's word because it challenges the way that we live. It defines what is right and what is wrong. It exposes the dark deeds of our lives. And we don't like that. And many people don't like that. And in an increasingly secular world that wants to push um, the, the gospel and the Christian message out of the 
marketplace, out of the public sphere, and try and keep it confined within at least the confines of church walls, uh, or even better, eradicate it completely and replace it with some new morality. That is the world that we live in. But interestingly here, the, the high priest won't even use the name of Jesus. He just calls, he talks about the name. He talks about this man's blood. And uh, Jesus had said in the upper room, in uh, the verse following the one we read earlier, that they will treat you this way because of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. And so the high priest realizes that if the apostles are right, then they are seriously wrong. So he is not going to back down on this one. In fact, he even realizes that they are guilty of this man's blood, that they're guilty of killing this Jesus because of their earlier decisions. So this is very difficult for them to back down on. And so they continue to attack it. But there's this sense now that the trial has changed from the apostles being on trial to actually the religious leaders being on trial for what has happened to Jesus. And so we see the second response. And this is the response from the apostles. And they continue to affirm the truth. You know, in chapter 4, verse 20, it said, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And here in verse 29, chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They don't attack back, okay? But they confidently affirm the truth and they give their testimony. They stand firm, but they do it in a way that is not attacking, if that makes sense. They are not diplomats either. They are not diplomats of Jesus trying to avoid a beating and talk themselves out of it. They are very much ambassadors for Christ. They, as Paul put it, you know, they, they want to identify with Jesus, even in his suffering. They, they want to be representatives just like Jesus who went to the cross um, and went through everything that he went through. They stand firm for Jesus, and God honors their courage and their faith. They don't change their convictions. They obey what God asks them to do, and then they trust him for the consequences that might come. Some of you, a few of you may remember Joseph Tson. Uh, Joseph was a Romanian Baptist pastor, minister. And uh, John Miles, John and Grace Miles, who used to do a lot of mission work uh, with us at Riverside, uh, um, knew Joseph, and uh, he came and spoke here um, uh, many years back um, about his experiences. And uh, during the, he was around during the strong communist rule of Romania in the 70s and 80s, and uh, his preaching caused major, major problems for the regime uh, there. Um, he was arrested and imprisoned uh, several times in Romania during the 70s, and he was charged for simply being a Christian minister. And every time he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, he would get beaten, they would play mind games with him, and eventually in 1981, they decided to exile him from the country altogether. But during one particular harrowing session of interrogation, Joseph told his inquisitors that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of the theology of suffering, he learned, was that tribulation is never an accident, but it is part of God's sovereign plan of for building his church. He told the interrogator this. He said, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing, but my supreme weapon is dying. 
He said, now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are recorded on tape all over the country. And when you shoot me or crush me, whichever you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with your blood. Everybody who's got a recording of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I'm going to listen to that again because this guy died for what he spoke about. He says, it will speak 10 times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you killed me. So go on and do it. He lived to tell us the story. But um, Joseph was an ambassador who affirmed the truth. And Carol, who was on the Alpha course, went on to do likewise in amazing ways. Peter goes on and he talks about Jesus here and he calls him Prince and Savior. Um, He says in verse 31, he was exalted. He is exalted to God's right hand. He has that place of power and authority and honor. And uh, the word prince um, is sometimes translated, you might know the phrase, the author of life, the prince of life, the author of life, the one who founds everything, the originator of everything, the pioneer of everything, but not just the one who got it started, the one who continues to lead us forward. And the Sanhedrin were not interested in any pioneering at all. They were interested only in protecting themselves. But as the pioneer of life, Jesus rescues us, he saves us, and then he leads us into a whole exciting adventure that we read of in Acts and and we can experience in our own lives as well. As we walk in the newness of life, as Paul put it in Romans, the newness of life, there's always new things for us to trailblaze in uh, with God. Someone said this, it says, Christian life is not a parking lot, it's a launch pad. Okay, it is a launch pad and we continue to grow as he leads us through the next challenge, to the next step of faith, through uh, something that will lead us into maturity. And so the apostles are following their prince. They're following their pioneering leader and Lord. And also he says savior. And savior was not a new term to the council. They, they, they knew this word. It was used of doctors who would literally save people's lives. It was used of philosophers who would solve people's complex problems in life. It was used of the statesmen who would, uh, who would save and rescue people from war and the dangers uh, in an international way. But only Jesus is the true and living Savior who rescues us completely from sin, from death, from judgment, as we put our trust uh, in him. And so Paul, Peter calls them, and he calls them to turn to this God, to this, this Savior, to this Prince, Um, and promises them, and as they do, turn to him in repentance, that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit um, as they obey God's call and as they trust God's Son. And so they are very bold in their witness before probably the highest Jewish religious uh, court in the land, Um, and yet God enables them to speak uh, with wisdom and with boldness as they affirm the truth. And then we get the third response from this chap, Gamaliel, in verse 34. Um, And to be honest, I think Gamaliel avoids the truth. Um, He is a very clever guy. He's a great scholar. Um, He is highly regarded. In fact, uh, Paul, when he was a zealous Jew before his conversion, trained under Gamaliel, um, Acts 22, verse 3. But here, his his advice is really to sit on the fence. Although God uses it to actually rescue the apostles from death, Um, themselves. But he tries to use a cool logic to bring the kind of emotional tension down uh, amongst uh, the council. But he doesn't really get Jesus either. 
Okay, because the, the people he mentions that he likens Jesus to are two pretty rebellious people. Thaddeus, verse 36, Judas, verse 37, who've incited revolt and all sorts of violence and trying to overthrow everything. And uh, anyway, he says these guys did all this stuff, but it never came to anything, ultimately. But with his, his twist of kind of bad logic, um, he convinces the council that there's nothing to worry about. Troublemakers calm, troublemakers go, so just chill, guys. It will go away. But he also has the wrong idea that if something is of God, it's going to fail. And um, that is ignoring both the sinful nature of humanity and the fallen world, and it also ignores the reality of the spiritual forces of darkness at work in our world. Um, I love this quote from uh, Mark Twain. A lie runs around the world while truth is still putting our shoes on. Um, and we see that in our world. You know, in the end, we know God's truth will win. But for now, Satan, the father of all lies, can be very strong and influence millions of people. You know, success alone is never a test of truth. You think about all the false cults that are in the world. Think about all of the false religions that are in the world. Think of all the false philosophies that can grow way faster than the church. It doesn't mean that it's right. The world is a battlefield of ideologies with truth and error in mortal combat. And at times it feels like truth is on the ropes and, uh, and wrong is jumping around in the ring celebrating um, at our expense. But when you unpack it, Gamaliel's wisdom actually makes little real sense. And Jesus said, if you're not for me, okay, you are against me. There's no sitting in the middle. You're with me or you're against me. Matthew 12, 30. And Gamaliel just wants an easy way out so he avoids the truth. And there are many people in our world who just want to avoid being confronted with the truth because of the challenge that it is to our lives. And then the fourth response is back to the apostles. And they just continue to announce the truth. Uh, they are flogged in the end, not killed. They get the, 40, the 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, as we read in 2 Corinthians 11:24. Um, and that flogging is pretty horrendous. It was a pretty horrendous 39 lashes that they got. So this is not good. But they're still alive, and they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name for Jesus. Again, they're banned from speaking about him. But, verse 30 to 42, day after day in the temple courts and house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is their response. They continue to announce the truth to more and more people. And when people won't discuss their disagreements with the gospel, often they, they don't want to talk about it. And so they, they, you know, they get verbal about it um, or they online abuse or even physical violence that we see in the world with persecution, sometimes all of those things. And William Temple, I came across this quote, which I think is really helpful. And it just says that Christians have got the hardest task of all because we are to fight without hatred. We are to resist without bitterness. And in the end, if God grants it so, to triumph without vindictiveness without gloating, without rubbing it in. And uh, I think that is a good reminder to the church at large and the challenges that the persecuted church particularly have and model so well around the world. 
But Peter here, as we know, has come a long, long way. Here's a guy who has disowned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus encouraged him beyond that. And now he, has, he goes on to write a letter, letters, two letters. One of them has a very strong focus on suffering for the gospel, First uh, Peter, um, as he learns how to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and the reality of the challenge that comes around and the rejection that comes around because of our faith. And here he's learning more of what those lessons look like. But the threats, neither the beatings, um, stop them from sharing their faith. In fact, the persecution made them trust God more and, uh, and seek even greater power in their ministry. Um, who's seen the film 1917? Who's not seen the film 1917? Oh man, you've got to go and see this film. Right, well, anyway, I'm, no spoilers then, really. I'll try not to do those spoilers, okay? But it, basically, there's a couple of infantrymen who are given a commission in the First World War. And to take this message that is going to save a lot of lives from A to B. Come what may. Okay? And believe you me, everything comes against them. Everything. Okay? It is incredibly hard. It is incredibly emotional. Um, but the more that comes their way, the more determination they have to get the message there. And actually, every single one of us is an infantryman. Okay? We have all been given a simple commission to take this message to our friends, to our families, to our communities, come what may, and everything will come against that. And the apostles shared day after day. They shared every day, it says. And if we're honest, we probably think, if I've shared my faith this year, I'm doing pretty well. Okay, I can think, if I've shared my faith this month, man, that is remarkable. You know, uh, what incredible, give myself a pat on the back. But these guys had a, an everyday attitude. You know, every single day we can say to God, okay, can you use me today? Here I am today. Um, I surrender to you just today. Here I am, Lord, use me. Will you open some doors of opportunity for me? Will you open some hearts in people's lives? Will you open my mouth to at least say something to someone somewhere? Um, that will speak of you. And um, the, when we've been on the uh, Christian Life and Witness uh, training, um, we've been talking about some really helpful stuff about people's needs. Because most people do not wake up in the morning and think, I need Jesus. You know? Most people do wake up with some real needs in their lives, though. So what are the sorts of things that they have? Um, so I'll click through that. Broken relationships. You know, People wake up thinking, this has not worked out how I intended it in life. You know, guilt. People have done some wrong stuff in the world, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to take it. You know, maybe the psychologist will say, blame someone else, but actually the reality is people know they've got stuff that's wrong in their life. What do I do with that? You know, 80% of people experience significant stress every single day. People are trying to work out what is the meaning of life. You know, I get up, I go to work, I go to bed. I get up, I go to work, I go to bed. What am I really here for? What is it all about? Loneliness, you know, we live in, uh, in an urban context where we probably live physically closer to people than ever before, and yet we are more relationally isolated from people than ever before. Our dark side, you know, everyone has a dark side we'd, we'd rather not have. Some of us bump into it from time to time. Some people find themselves dominated by it. It dominates their life. They don't want it, but what do they do with it? Where do they go with it? 
And so we need to listen to people's stories and their lives and begin to diagnose the issues that they have, which ultimately has something to do with sin uh, there. And then we begin to relate our stories and God's story into those needs and into those situations. So they begin to see what the cure is and how this crazy message of Jesus dying and rising to life paid the price and broke the power and cleans our life and really is relevant in 2020 because it really is the solution. You know, broken relationships. Come and know a God who loves you unconditionally, who will never leave you or forsake you. Instead of guilt, you can know absolute forgiveness. Even though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You know, stress in our lives. Come and know the Prince of Peace who brings real sense of well-being to your life. Instead of meaninglessness and futility, God has got a purpose and a plan for your life. Come and discover it. Life in all its fullness. Instead of loneliness, come and be part of a community that loves and accepts and forgives and, uh, and be part of that. And instead of our dark side, he's broken the power so we can be free and that we can experience and live a right life um, as we were designed to do. And this is good news. Okay, these are the ways that we connect with people and this is what we're commissioned to share. And if you haven't been on the training, can I just encourage you, there is, there's another one in Selly Oak at Christian Life Center this Saturday. Um, you can go on that site, you can sign up for it. Um, very, very helpful. There's a youth one coming up on March the 21st um, as well. But the apostles focus on simply sharing this Jesus. They just keep telling people about this Jesus, about what he's done, the good news, that he really is the Savior. He really is the one who rescues. He's the one that changes our lives. They focus on the person who can rescue them. This guy is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And uh, turn to him as well. Turn to him and he will do all of these things. That is the promise. And so the question this morning is, is probably very simple. It's like the lads in that film 1917. Will you carry the message? Whatever it takes. Will you be a carrier of the message? I remember there was a campaign in Edinburgh one Easter um, with a leaflet went out to every home in Edinburgh. And it said on the front, just said, somebody died trying to get this message to you. Which actually is true because of what Jesus did. That somebody died in order to get that message to us. And we also identify ourselves with that as we, we recognize what might it take if we're to be those that carry the message to others as well.